You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have uh, Katie Peichel, uh, formerly Catherine Peichel, uh, head of the uh, Evolutionary Ecology Division at the University of Bern. Actually, it's the Institute of Ecology and Evolution. So, uh, Katie, thank you for coming. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're, uh, you, you appear to be specialized in the exact area I've been uh, asking about for a long time is uh, how do new species occur? You know, the, the only uh-huh. thing I've ever heard is, oh, they occurred millions of years ago and no one's ever seen them. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't quite believe that. So I, I always want to know, you know, how do new species occur? What what pressures and what uh, evolutionary changes do uh, the creatures go through phenotypically to become a new species? So hopefully you can shed some light. I, I hope that I can. I think it's still quite a, quite a mystery, but we're starting to gain some more insight into that process. So Okay. Yeah. Before we begin... Um, you know, I, I hear phenotype, that word used a lot. Can you describe what it means to you so that when we start using it and you start using it, that it makes sense to listeners? Sure. A phenotype is anything that we can measure on an on an organism. So that could be height or weight or lifespan or a particular behavior. So, so we often use the word phenotype. Uh, in the same way as trait, but it, it basically means anything we can measure. Okay. Well, very good. So what's, uh, what's your current state of understanding of what constitutes a species? It seems like, you know, when something's a different species, you know, species A and species B, they can't breed to create viable offspring. That's the definition I've always heard. But what is what is your definition of a species? So I think it's still, I would say this is still somewhat debated on, um, by biologists, um, how exactly to define a species. And for me, I use um, the same one that you just mentioned, which is called the biological species concept. It's first put forward by Ernst Mayer, and it basically says that species are groups um, of actual or potentially interbreeding they're, they're groups that can interbreed with each other, but they're reproductively isolated from other groups. So they basically can't breed with other groups. And that could be because of um, 
they just don't breed in the same place or at the same time. That could be because they have behavioral differences that prevent them from, from breeding with each other, or that could be um, that they might breed with each other, but the hybrids that they make are, are sterile or they're inviable. So that's kind of the, so the a, a donkey or a mule. I forget which one, but um, exactly two different so, or things like so is that li- considered a new species or is it not? Well, it's not really a new species. That would be a, a hybrid between two species that is not really going to to reproduce on its own. So it doesn't form its own species. Um, but. Um, yeah, so the key to this definition of a species is this, this idea of reproductive isolation. So barriers to breeding between two groups. So, uh, have we seen speciation occur, you know, while people have been observing in the last thousand years or so, a couple thousand years? Yeah, so, I mean, we can find um, groups that are very... Um, that we sort of call different species because they are reproductively isolated from each other and they're very young. So for example, I work on these groups of fish, this uh, group of fish called sticklebacks. And within a few lakes in British Columbia, you actually have two species of these these stickleback fish. One that's living in the very open part of the lake. Those fish are feeding on um, zooplankton. They're very Kind of they're small, they're slender, they're they have a lot of physical changes or phenotypes that adapt them to living in this open water habitat. And then within the same lake, you have fish that we call benthics, and they're living in the very vegetated part of the lake. They're eating large macroinvertebrates. They're quite large and stocky fish, and they have phenotypes that adapt them to to eating these very different kinds of food that like these small invertebrates in the in the benthic environment. Now these two types of of stickleback that live within the same lake, they meet each other so that you can find them breeding the same time and in the same location, but they actually don't breed with each other because um, they have a behavioral preference for their own type. So limnetic females like to mate with limnetic males and benthic females like to mate with benthic males. Um, and so essentially they are two different species, um, even though these lakes were only formed about 10,000 years ago. So we know that uh, when there was glaciers covering the Northern Hemisphere, covering British Columbia, there weren't lakes there. These freshwater lakes were not present and they formed since then. So those are relatively young um, species, at least on an evolutionary time scale. Can they breed with each other? They just prefer not to, or they literally can't? That's exactly right. So they can breed with each other. So if we bring them into the lab and we take sperm and eggs from the benthic somnetics and we mix them up, we can get viable um, hybrids, and those hybrids are fertile. They can have their own offspring. So they're they're physically they're able to, to reproduce with each other, but they just prefer not to. So when do, you, do we is also the ancestor of the two living in that same lake or is it gone so we don't know so the ancestor of most freshwater stickleback populations we think is a marine stickleback which um when the glaciers melted that were covering most of the northern hemisphere about 12,000 years ago these um fresh newly created freshwater lakes and streams were invaded by marine sticklebacks and so it's thought that marine sticklebacks gave rise to these benthic forms and these, these benthic species and these limnetic species. 
But what's unique about these two lakes or these these lakes where we find the benthics and limnetics is that there's geological evidence that those lakes were invaded twice by marine ancestors. So there was an initial founding of, of or invasion of the lake by marines. It's thought that those fish became the limnetic species. Um, and then, I'm sorry, I said that the wrong way. It's thought that the first invasion became benthic. And then there was a second invasion of marine sticklebacks, and those, because this benthic habitat was already taken, moved into the open water and became the marine or became the limnetic fish. So, what do you think leads a creature to change over time, to evolve, and to eventually uh, form a new species? Is it? I mean, some theories, you know, maybe my own is uh, the piling up of epigenetic changes that you know slowly cause the, the underlying DNA at some point to change, or just the epigenetic changes lead to a, a different phenotype. I mean, what do you what do you see? So, in in the the case of these sticklebacks, our our idea is that it was really adaptation to these very different environments. So the the benthic sticklebacks were kind of changing in their phenotypes to live and take advantage of these benthic resources, macroinvertebrates. The limnetics also were changing over time um, to adapt to eating these. Um, uh, zooplankton and there was accumulation of genetic changes in the benthics and the limnetics that um, then led to this be- what we call behavioral isolation and so we really think in this case speciation was a byproduct of adaptation to these different environments and in fact the traits or the phenotypes that make a benthic um, female choose a benthic male so this big deep body um are really the same traits that make them able to forage or eat in these very different habitats and so it's really just a kind of a consequence of of adaptation to these very different habitats that led to this process of speciation but when you say adaptations adaptations on what level specifically do you think is happening we we're thinking about adaptation on the level of the 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 when we talk about adaptation, we talk about um, phenotypes that make an organism more fit in their environment. So what that means is that they um, they survive and reproduce better. And so you have these phenotypic adaptations, phenotypes that, that increase your fitness. But then there must be genetic changes that underlie those phenotypic changes that cause these adaptations. And so we, we really are, in, in my group, we're thinking about trying to understand what are the phenotypes that are important for adaptation and therefore for speciation. And then what are the underlying genetic changes that allow them, um, allow these sort of phenotypic changes to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess um, there could be a compounding of phenotypic changes by you know, various mechanisms, but it's an adaptation to the environment, which makes total sense to me. Mm-hmm. But it's funny. It, I, I wonder if, if, if what causes the sexual reproduction isolation is the preference the mating preference, just like in the sticklebacks. At yep. the end, that's what really finishes it off and, and finishes diverging the species. Well, we think, I mean, at least in these sticklebacks, I think about these behavioral differences as an important component. So it certainly kind of reinforces, which is, I don't want to use the re- word reinforcement because it has a specific meaning, but but it, it basically helps them maintain themselves as, as separate. But this behavioral isolation is not perfect. 
So sometimes a limnetic will mate with a benthic or vice versa. And so you still get some exchange of genes between them. And what we tend to think about in the speciation um, field is that things like high, intrinsic hybrid inviability uh, is what kind of completes speciation. So that would be if hybrids are formed, they just die. Um, and we don't we don't see evidence for that in this in this system. If we make, as I said before, if we make the hybrids in the lab, they can actually survive just fine um, in the lab where we give them food and we give them sort of nice environment. It is true, however, that these these hybrids in the wild, when they're formed, they're not very fit. They can't eat the they can't forage very well. Um, in the in the normal environment of the lake, and so they tend to die as well. But some a few hybrids every year, some percentage of hybrids actually are formed and and do actually survive. So that's why we call these sort of incipient species. They're they're in the process of speciation, but they're not quite full species yet. It'd be interesting if you could do an experiment where you released hybrids into the lake and watched what they did over several generations if they moved to the benthic form or the other form, you know, or to a third form, you know? Yes, it would be really cool to do that. We cannot do that in nature just because we don't want to um, do those sorts of experiments and mess up natural lakes. But I've worked quite closely with um, Dolph Schluter, who has a lab at the University of British Columbia in Canada. And Dolph has this amazing series of ponds in which we've kind of, he has kind of replicated these, the environments that are present in the, in the natural lakes. So the, these big ponds are about 20 meters by 20 meters and they can hold thousands of sticklebacks. And there's a benthic part of the pond and a limnetic part of the pond. And we can put hybrids in there and we can follow them over time and over generations um, and see kind of who survives um, best in the ponds. And that's how we know, for example, that the some hybrids do really badly. They can't really eat um, either sort of parental food. They can't eat the, the zooplankton that the limnetics eat, and they can't eat these macroinvertebrates that the, that the benthics eat. So when does nature create uh, viable hybrids versus non-viable? Is it... When we force it, it seems like they're non-viable. But when nature does it, though we haven't observed it directly, it seems like they're viable. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's partially, uh, um, there's a little bit of a bias, right, in what people take to the lab and try and cross together and and what what people have actually, you know, what species people have actually looked at um, in nature. I would say anything... Most of the things that we as humans recognize as good species, um, in fact, if we did this test and we tried to make hybrids, generally the hybrids don't do very well. Um, but there are more and more of these cases of like my sticklebacks and in many other systems where there's things, species that look different from each other, but aren't completely reproductively isolated from each other. Um, and it's only now I think that biologists are looking more closely and it just, it really takes someone who's very careful and thoughtful and, and goes out into nature and looks into a population and says, huh, that's interesting. Some of these fish look like this and some of these fish look, th- look like this. Um, I wonder if they're reproductively isolated from each other and then starts to, starts to do these tests. So I think um, 
there, there's more and more interest in looking at these cases like the sticklebacks of these sort of young species, and we're discovering them more and more all the time, the more people look. Um, are, are you able to guess that, you know, how many generations it takes for speciation to occur? Is that at all? I mean, we have uh, so far the upper limit or the lower limit is 10,000 years, I guess, but right. how, um, how short could it be? Well, I think it could be shorter. And people have done some experiments, for example, in the lab where they have selected, um, I'm not going to get the details of the experiments right, but for example, you can select things like yeast growing on different sort of resources, so selection on different habitats, and in just you know a few dozen generations evolve reproductive isolation between them as a consequence of adaptation to div divergent habitats. So I think it can happen pretty fast. It's just a question of us finding it. Well, yeast, I guess, you know, we can call them simpler organisms, but uh, more complicated organisms. You know, have we been able to try it with fruit flies? Yeah, exactly. Pretty fast. Yeah, there's some experiments as well in fruit flies where if you adapt fruit flies to different habitats, you can evolve some forms of reproductive isolation between them, again, and not, not very many, many generations. What's the approximate of not many, like a hundred, a thousand? Yeah, I would say on the order of you know tens to a hundred gen generations. Yeah, that's pretty it short. That's yeah, pretty it short. is pretty. It is pretty short. I think an important question that um, many of us in the field of speciation are trying to understand now is: um, it seems relatively easy to get these these reproductive isolation to evolve and these kind of young species pairs, but how often do they persist? So how do we connect these patterns of these very young species pairs that we find to kind of the big patterns of diversity that we see um, in nature where there's all these different species and what, what causes them to, per, to persist and to remain as separate species? Um, is is a question that I don't think we have an answer to. Well, I think it's, I mean, evolution appears to happen in response to environmental stress and environmental right. changes. So as long as those persist in some way, you know, even if the environmental stress changes at a certain point, the species doesn't seem like it goes backwards. It, it'll continue forward along a new path. That's right. That's right. And I think the question is, how long does that does that part take to happen? So again, as an example from sticklebacks, I told you about these species pairs in, in these lakes in British Columbia. Well, we have evidence that one in one lake called Enos Lake, the species pairs have actually collapsed. So there was an environmental change to the lake and there used to be, well, there used to be benthics and limnetics in that lake. They've been quite well studied. And then there were some environmental changes to the lake. Um, and now they're hybridizing with each other. And so we don't see distinct gene uh, species anymore. They've, they've collapsed back into what we call a hybrid swarm. Um, and so, so that's a case where the species did not persist. Um, we also have examples or kind of a, a question is, we have these young species in sticklebacks, which are just 10,000 years old or so. And as I so told you, they don't, if we breed them in the lab, we get viable hybrids and, and the hybrids can have offspring. But then we have some species pairs and sticklebacks that are like about a million years old. And there, if we breed them in the lab, the hybrids are uh, are sterile. So the males don't 
don't don't make sperm. And so there's this gap between this 10,000 years, you can kind of evolve species, but it's not complete. And then we have these sort of older species pairs that are a million years old or so. And there you get sort of more complete um, reproductive isolation or speciation. So we don't understand what's pushing things kind of, is it just time? Or are there other events that, that we don't know about? What happens when you run into a, a neo-Darwinist knowing what you know and experiencing what you've experienced? Um, I, yeah, it's interesting. I usually, when people ask me what I do um, and what I'm interested in, I usually tell them I'm really interested in the genetic changes that underlie now how why organisms look be different from each other or behave differently from each other. Um, so I try and talk mostly about kind of what I do from from that perspective and convince people that that's interesting and then kind of tell them, well, this is this is evolutionary biology. Hmm. So you're looking at the, the phenotypical expression of these creatures, but what about the underlying genetics, the epigenetics? Um, are you looking there or is that uh, too much work and other scientists have to do that? No, no, that's a huge part of my research. So these these fish that I study are a really great system for that because, as I mentioned, we can take these species back to the lab and they do breed with each other. And we can use, we can breed them in the lab and we can use genetics to understand, well, what are the actual genes that underlie these phenotypic differences um, between species? It's particularly the phenotypic differences um, that lead to re- to reproductive isolation, and so my lab has done a lot of work um, to try and understand what are the the changes in the genome or the DNA sequence changes that actually contribute to these phenotypic adaptations and to speciation. It is a lot of work, so you, but yeah. Well, well, what are you seeing? I mean, what seems to be uh, is it a various mechanisms? Is there a predominant one that seems to uh, to happen early on or later on? Yeah, there's there's um, I think there's a few lessons that that we've learned so far from these sticklebacks. And so the first is a a question that's been debated really since the time of Darwin, which is how do phenotypic changes happen? Is it because there's like a few mutations that have huge effects on phenotypes? And so you kind of get these big leaps of, of evolution or does evolution happen by many, many um, mutations that each have relatively small effects on phenotype. Um, and we've been able to show that it's a combination of there are some genetic changes that have relatively large effects on phenotypes, and there are s- some changes, then kind of more changes that each that have smaller effects on phenotypes. So just change the phenotype a little bit, but you get this nice distribution um, of effects. And that's important because people really thought for a long time that the mutations that led to phenotypic adaptation and to speciation would be so small that those mutations would have such minor effects on phenotypes that you would never actually be able to find them. And so we've shown that you, yeah, you can actually find these, these genetic changes that are important for, for evolutionary changes in, in phenotypes. Um, so they're, they're not small. Um, how appropriate are they? How smart are they? How smart are the changes? Are they, do they appear to be just random and some of them happen to work? Or do they appear to be very guided and focused as if the organism so is, in, is in our in our evidence can't necessarily say kind of the mutational processes that that led to um, that led to these changes 
Um, they don't, it, it more appears to be there's, there's mutations that happen um, and then selection that acts on those, on the phenotypes. And if the phenotype cause, causes an increase in fitness, then they, then they're under selection. Um, one interesting thing though about sticklebacks, as I mentioned earlier, there's these marine sticklebacks have moved into freshwater. Um, and in, that's what it has established freshwater populations, which is where we see all of the sort of diversity in, in phenotypes. And, um, these marine sticklebacks are still moving into freshwater to breed every year. They're like salmon. They move into freshwater to breed. And, and when they do that, they come into contact with freshwater resident sticklebacks. And so there's a little bit of, of, of hybridization that happens. And the genes or the alleles of those genes, the, the forms of those genes that are kind of adaptive in freshwater um, get into marine sticklebacks. So if we take a bunch of marine sticklebacks and we sequence them, we can find that some of them at very low frequency have an, an allele that is good in freshwater. And so what we think is happening is that when marine sticklebacks go into freshwater, they invade a new freshwater population, those marine, those freshwater alleles that are sort of hiding in the marine population get selected upon and um, rise in frequency in the freshwater populations. And so if we go to 100 different freshwater populations across the world, we find that they have the same freshwater adapted alleles because the marines are kind of... We really, and sticklebacks are not really waiting for new mutations to happen, but rather these are old mutations that have happened. Selection has favored them. And then they've kind of stuck around in the stickleback population. And then when there's selection for a particular phenotype in freshwater, um, the variation or the mutations that are needed for, for adaptation are already there. But when the marine sticklebacks go into freshwater, are they mating with freshwater sticklebacks or are they mating with other marine sticklebacks in the context of the freshwater? They're mostly mating with other marine sticklebacks, but occasionally they do mate with, uh, with sorry, sorry, I hope I just said that right. The marine sticklebacks are mostly mating with marine sticklebacks, but occasionally they do mate with the freshwater sticklebacks. And that's how this exchange of these um, alleles are, is happening. I mean, it could be two things, though. If they're mating in the freshwater context, that could temporarily be changing their gene expression. They mate. Maybe the gene expression is heritable. Now the new marine that comes out of that is changed just because it happened to be conceived in a, a freshwater environment. You know? That's, it, it could be. We currently don't have any evidence for any sort of epigenetic changes like you're talking about in, in sticklebacks. We have evidence for we have very, very good evidence for for DNA sequence changes between marine and freshwater sticklebacks um, that kind of differentiate well, them. I would think the marine sticklebacks, once they go into the freshwater, they would their gene expression would change dramatically. It's a very different it, environment, at least while they're in the freshwater environment. That's right. It, that. it does. So there are people who've done experiments where they put Marines into, into freshwater and there are changes in gene expression, but to date, there's no evidence that that change in gene expression is heritable. So the only, the only evidence we have for sequence changes that are heritable between Marine and freshwater sticklebacks are kind of these 
DNA sequence changes that 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 yeah. differ. What percentage yeah. of the Marines, uh, you know, breed with the fresh? And does that change the fresh population over time as it gets invaded over and over every year? That's right. It's it's a relatively low percentage of, of hybridization between marine and freshwater populations. It varies from from place to place, but it's generally just a just a few percentage. And usually those hybrids don't do um, particularly well, but it seems to be enough hybridization that the marines kind of pick up these freshwater adopted alleles and then are carrying them around. So why not do an experiment with Marines that have no freshwater alleles, put them in a freshwater environment, see if you can breed them and then see what happens to them. If they, uh, that's, you know, that is such, this, this that's a great, great experiment. So, um, it's sort of being done soon. Um, so, in fact, right now in Alaska, some colleagues of mine, are putting marine sticklebacks into some lakes where all of the fish were killed. And so these are freshwater lakes. And so they can put marine sticklebacks into those lakes and kind of see how they evolve over time. Um, mm, okay. What would be cool, what you're suggesting, so probably these marine sticklebacks that are going to these freshwater lakes are going to have already um, some of these freshwater adapted alleles because of this what we call standing genetic variation in the marine population. But I think what you're suggesting is that we would take marine sticklebacks that we know don't have any of these sort of freshwater alleles already to see kind of what would be the role of new mutation um, in, a, in an adaptation to freshwater. So that'd be really a cool experiment if we could have two populations of marine sticklebacks invading kind of... Um, going into different lakes and asking do the do the ones with no sort of existing freshwater alleles how do they adapt and follow follow those mm. over time that'd be that'd be an interesting yeah i mean from, from what i've heard i mean uh gene expression can change incredibly quickly sometimes mm -hmm. within like hours yeah or minutes or hours so i mean yep. i don't know interesting yeah yeah but again the, the question is then how does that how does that then get transmitted to the to the next generation? So the gene expression changes. That's right, just changing right. on the level, but but how is that actually transmitted? So yeah, or is it transmitted right? So what are uh, what are some upcoming experiments or things that you want to figure out? You know, what are you working on this year? Let's see. So I'm involved in this big experiment in Alaska. Not so much the marine sticklebacks going into freshwater, but we're putting some sort of these benthic and limnetic type of sticklebacks into into eight different lakes. Um, and we want to understand kind of when, yeah, again, the question like when these, these um, different fish go into new environments, what are the changes in the genome um, that allow them to adapt to these new habitats? But we're also interested in understanding kind of the effect of the sticklebacks themselves on the ecosystem, the whole ecosystem. So how do they change the ecosystem of the lake? And then do those changes in the ecosystem sort of feedback onto the sticklebacks? Um, and do they change phenotypically um, over time? So this is a big sort of experimental evolution um, that people traditionally do in microbes because, you know, or fruit flies where you can get, um, well, microbes you, like yeast or bacteria, you can get hundreds of generations really, really fast. Um, in Drosophila, you can have, you know, 
four to five generations, 10 generations a year. Stickleback generation time is only is one year. So this is a very long-term experiment that's just getting started, but we look forward to kind of seeing how that literally evolves over the next 10 years or so. Um, and then I'm really interested in kind of understanding more about kind of ch- changes in the genome itself um, and how changes in the genome, so the structure of chromosomes, how does that affect uh, adaptation and, and speciation? Okay. Do you, do you know anyone that, uh, actually, before I get to that, um, the person that's, that has the pond experiments, uh-huh. I would think they could create ponds of different salinity, you know, different kinds of conditions, different temperature and all that, and keep that pretty consistent. So right. you can see the, uh, the the degree to which, you know, the sticklebacks changed, whether the uh, the change in their current conditions is slight or great, and that may right. cause speciation faster. I mean, at a certain point, it'll kill them. You know, that's right. the, right. how far could you push it and see fast speciation? Fast right. Changes. Yeah, no, that would be an interesting. So the ponds we can't control so carefully, temperature and salinity, but but those are the kinds of things that um, that would be fun would be fun to do. Yeah. Okay. Do you know anyone that's uh, working on this kind of stuff in people, not causing it to happen, but observing it? You know, are we observing in the human population uh, significant phenotypic changes over time. I mean, I think people are interested in looking at different populations of, of humans that have phenotypic differences and then understanding, you know, what are the genetic changes that underlie those phenotypic differences? And also what are the sort of selective forces, ecological forces that um, lead to those changes? So for example, people working on adaptation to high altitude in, in Tibetans or in people in, in South America, those are the, the types of, I think those are very similar sorts of questions to what we're doing in, in sticklebacks. Okay, well, very good. So, um, what would uh, what could happen in the next few years that would like delight you that you'd uh, be really excited to see as a result? Whew, that's a good that's a good um, question. I mean, for me, what we still don't know in in almost any case in evolutionary biology is, let's say, we have a phenotype that changes. Um, what we really want to know as an evolutionary biologist is what are the genetic changes that underlie that phenotypic change? So what are the specific DNA sequence changes? Um, what are the genes? And then we also really want to know what are the selective forces? So what is, is, what is it in the ecology or, or why did that phenotype change? Why did that phenotype evolve? And so it's the sort of um, what we call the proximate mechanisms um, the, the, the genetic changes and then these ultimate causes. So the, the, the selective forces. And I think we really don't have very many examples where we can put all those pieces together. And that's really what I'm trying to do, um, in my fish is make this really complete story of evolution where we understand kind of everything from the genetic changes to the phenotypic changes to the sort of selective forces. So that's what I'd like to accomplish in the next few years. Okay. Well, very good. So what's the best way for uh, people to get in touch and ask for questions? Um, via email, for sure. Okay. Um, I guess we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, any other publications people could look at or, or ways to uh, see the stickleback in action? 
I guess all of, yeah, all of our publications are listed on our my lab's website, so you can include include that. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any, and we have some pictures on our website of of the fish of the fish themselves. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Katie, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.